It's happy hour from Uptown New Orleans and the lovely Columns Hotel. Hello, I'm Graham DePonte. I'm guest hosting today for Grant Morris. In the next 60 minutes, you'll get to meet just three, four, actually, of the many thousands of fascinating people who live in New Orleans, and you'll get to hear some live music. At the end of the show, you might conclude New Orleans is a great city where people love to talk, have fun, and enjoy great music, but you probably know that already. So let's get right on with doing nothing, nothing that is, but enjoying the next 60 minutes of happy hour together. My guests sitting around the table today are... Robert Dean, a uh, writer and musician living in the Treme and author of the newly released, and may I say, compellingly, compellingly frightening novel, In the Arms of Nightmares. Robert is a contributor to numerous current events and music publications, including the world-renowned Offbeat magazine, and is head writer for Quarterat, the French Quarter's monthly insider magazine. Fresh off the publication of In the Arms of Nightmares, Robert is currently at work on his second novel. Hi, Robert. And Jeffrey Thomas, a principal of Thomas Strategies, LLC, a strategic planning firm that specializes in facilitating public-private partnerships, layered financing solutions, and public policy and business plan frameworks aimed at spurring community and economic development. And Jeffrey is also a lawyer and has served on numerous boards and organizations, including the New Orleans Young Leadership Council, Sierra Club's National Political Committee, and the Louisiana Center for Law and Civic Education. Currently, uh, Jeffrey is uh, representing District B on the Orleans Parish Democratic Party Executive Committee. And Miss Mech. Hello, New Orleans. Miss Mech is a singer-songwriter originally from Texas and the Gulf Coast. She is now living in New Orleans. At age 24, she's been involved in different scenes for the past three years. First getting her start after leaving in college in 2009, she met Nate Coleman, which led to a singer-songwriter duo named Granddaddy Slank. They began performing on the streets and small venues around New Orleans. Miss Met then stepped out of her original music and began covering Roots Reggae at Bank Street Bar in 2010 with the Rhythm Cruisers. Recently, in summer of 2011, she started working with Coco Dank, who also joins us, New Orleans native uh, reggae dance hall artist and producer. Hello to everybody. Thank you guys so much for being on Happy Hour with us. This is really fun. Um, I want to start, since the artists outnumber the lawyers, let's start with... Sounds like a beginning of a joke. Jeffrey. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Wait, what happened? Three artists and a lawyer get together. Walked into a bar. Here we are. Um, So you, Jeffrey, you were uh, named to Gambit's favorite, uh, famous 40 under 40 list. You're also listed by City Business as one of New Orleans' top 50 lawyers. Did, yeah, that's it's true. It's true. Not not more. Not recently, unfortunately, at forty under forty. But uh, well, now, I was under forty when I was named. And did those honors happen in the same year? Uh, the, one year after another. Two thousand six, I was named uh, to the forty under forty, and two thousand seven, I was designated uh, uh, one of the fifty leaders in law. It was called. And that was right after Katrina. So yeah. what what is it that you were doing that was that made you one of the best 50 lawyers in the, well, in the city. You know, Katrina was kind of a wake-up call for me, and it was, you know, for as horrible as it was personally, it was a professional uh, you know, great moment for me to just get out of a law firm and start doing more meaningful work. I, it was, uh, I have a background in public policy. I, I had worked in environmental advocacy work in D.C. before I came down here 15 years ago, and I was just struggling to find a good professional niche to do that, and I was doing it on the side, frankly, of, of just law firm life. And then when Katrina happened, it Pick your issue. So I, I, I had a, a great firm that allowed me to do a lot of this work uh, pro bono. I started uh, diving into the recovery and 
advising on how local government in particular should be structuring itself to take on long-term recovery. You know, it was going to be receiving lots of federal dollars, and it was going to have to be using them in a responsible, efficient way. And uh, I had a, my background in public policy was just the right fit. So I started lending my, uh, my time as a lawyer and a policy advocate. And uh, little by little, I started putting together a nice career. And you ended up working with the mayor, right, with the mayor's office? I did. I, I, uh, I worked for the city's recovery office uh, from 2007 through 2009. And that must have been a t- – there must have been a lot going on. Yeah, you know, there, there was no script handed to us. Uh, you know, you're pretty much uh, rebuilding a city. So, you, you know, you're, you're, you're taking basic city processes and putting them on steroids and trying to get it all done extra fast because everybody wants that new normal to happen quickly. Right. So Katrina, it's fair to say, just changed, completely changed the trajectory of what you were doing. Completely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And Robert, were you here for Katrina? No, I got here right after Katrina. You did. So where were you living before? Chicago. What brought you to New Orleans? Writing. That's why I got here. Did Katrina have anything to do with your coming here? Was there no, nothing? I was coming down before Katrina. And then when uh, I got laid off from my job, I was here probably every... Uh, I think I was in New Orleans more than the south, the north side of the city. I was here every three months, and I would just take off work, and my bosses were getting really annoyed wow. with me. Wow. So even before you moved here, you were a visitor. Yeah. No, I was here constantly. And then <clears throat> once I got laid off, I was like, all right. And then I put all my stuff in my car, and I left. Now, are you sure you got laid off, or did you really get fired for coming to New Orleans too much? You can be honest. It's a little bit of column A, column B. <laughs> I kind of ended up in a job that I really hated. I absolutely hated. And for the last, I got out of college in 2003. And so since then, it's been one on big going thing to just keep writing and keep writing and keep writing and get published and keep writing. And then I had a job that had absolutely nothing to do with that. And I'd show up and they're like, are you going to work today? I was like, we'll see. What were you doing? What kind of job was it? I was working at the Chicago Board of Trade. I was in the, st- in the stock market. Whoa, no way. <laughs> You can't really just, you got to take that a little seriously, right? It was serious. It's just, you know, I'm not that guy. I'm yeah, covered in tattoos and I, yeah, we see you know, that. those are some nice tattoos. I'm there. a writer and everything. And I just right. kind of ended up in a job that unfortunately I didn't want to do. And after I got laid off, I put all my stuff in my car and was like, all right, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it in probably the most creative city that I could be in. Awesome. Love so, to hear that. Great. Now, Great. It's finally happening almost five years later. Well, this novel has gotten some amazing reviews, including from me. I was prepared to hate it, I have to say. (laughs) When you sent Um, me a text, I was like, well, I might get through it. Yeah. Well, I haven't gotten through it, but I've got to tell you, I will finish it. And that's very rare for me. I I have the attention span of a gnat, so it's very rare that I will actually get enmeshed in a book like I have with yours. Um, Why don't you tell us just a little bit about it? Um, in the Arms of Nightmares is about a World War II veteran who discovers that in the war he actually likes killing people instead of just killing for America. He's now killing for himself because in the war, when you had two sides, you had the Atlantic side and you had the Pacific side, and the Pacific side was living hell. And the, that, in that side, if my grandpa fought in that when I was a kid, he would tell us it was just miserable. If you weren't getting killed, you were dying of diphtheria or some awful disease or malaria. So you were getting this, you had two things against you, and guys were going loony, losing their minds. So that was the basis of the story. And then I figured, if I'm going to take a serial killer, how can I make him absolutely the most despicable, awful person that in the end... Like, because when you watch Silence of the Lambs or American Psycho or read American Psycho, you don't hate Hannibal Lecter, ever. You just, you kind of root for him. You kind of really want him to win. 
really mean think about it yeah and i wanted to make somebody so heinous so awful that you would always want to be like eh, he's doing some terrible things but i really like him so i took the basis of two totally different counterpoints of personality and created one person with all of the different ideas and factions of different ways serial killers move and they, everything is a psychological basis for all serial killers they all have a framework what did you research how did you oh, yeah, i've been weird since been, i was a little kid got it, got it. i've been weird since i was a little kid well there's cannibalism in this book there is i think let's see if i remember correctly uh there is uh, Arthur has a sexual encounter with himself at some point in yeah. the war after killing someone, yeah. right? Yeah. That's yeah. like the first time he realizes. A sexual encounter what... with himself. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Just, just let, fill in the blanks if, if you don't want to give anything, <laughs> if I don't give anything away. I wanted to create somebody so then after the war he had to pretend to be sane. And after that it's basically him being as whacked as possible trying to live a lie and show that he was totally normal. But at the same time, everything is going on in his head. Like, he discovers that music is what he hears in his mind. So Louis Armstrong is the voice of God. Miles Davis is the voice (laughs) of the devil. Bebop jazz is the actual sound of murder that happens in his head. The frantic pacing, the beats, everything is... Because when you're... I mean, if you think about when somebody gets killed... It's not pretty, and it's not in a way. I mean, if it's an up-close thing, it's going to be random, and there's going to be no system to it. That's kind of how bebop is played. Ah. Is from your research, did you find that, that that's how some serial killers have, have constructed that in their minds to make it uh, more acceptable to do what they do? No. I, I, most serial killing works in the framework that there's a certain basis of control that what they have, because there's obviously the difference between sociopath and psychopath. And so with those two kinds of behavior, I made it a complete sociopath because like ted bondy was a sociopath you can put on the the smile and the charm and next thing at night he's doing what he's doing and what's the difference a psychopath can't be charming is that the deal a psychopath has no caring whatsoever it, a psychopath is crazy 24 7 cannot lie can't hide he's the guy that's out there with a knife in the middle of the street Got screaming it. i'm gonna kill you a sociopath does it can tell you with the utmost confidence care that they have a job Everything in the world, you go, that guy's a really nice guy. Who How could he guy? have killed all those people? That's right, exactly. Right. And that was all, like, throughout the years, you have John Jeffrey Dahmer was a, uh, he was a psychopath. John Wayne Gacy was a sociopath. I did not know that. Uh, Miss Mech, do you think you could ever write a song about a serial killer, Cannibal? <laughs> Be pretty dark. Be pretty hard oh, to yeah. do. You should read this book. <laughs> yeah, dark. I I do like stuff like that though at times. So you also are a transplant. You came here in what year? I came here um, in '06. That following summer, I uh, was living in Slidell on the Bayou, and I came here to actually start school at Tulane University. And you came despite the hurricane too. Yes, well, my, I lost my house um, inside out pretty much. So my whole family dispersed and or had already moved to New Orleans into the French Quarter. So I soon came after that to, right. to meet up with them. Great. And your name, M-E-C, those are your initials, I think, right? Yes, those are my initials. Okay, I'm going to guess. Michelle Cunningham. Yes. So your middle name is Emily. Um, close, uh, Elaine. Oh, nice. All yes. right, I was close. <laughs> so why did you decide to go with initials? Um, well, I liked Mech for um, kind of reminding me of, like, make music. So that's kind of where that came off in my idea in my head. Um, thought it had a nice ring to it. Um, but so, yeah, that's where it initially came from, was from the initials, and then just I wanted to eventually get the idea of, like, me- mech music. 
Make, like make, okay. Like so, make. So you guys, you and Coco, who's joining us here, yes. you guys have been playing together for, what, about a year now? Yeah, it's been about a year. Going on this summer will we'll lead up to the year. Have you always been musical? I have. Since I've been little, of course, I was always in chorus. I was in band, and I played a little bit of trombone throughout junior high. Um, did a little bit of theater, uh, you know, class plays and stuff like that. So I'd always... Had uh, had an interest in doing music and being part part of that for sure. People have described your voice as a kind of a mashup between Amy Winehouse and Macy Gray. Yeah, I get that. Actually, I get Amy Winehouse a oh. lot more than anything, which you know I do love her. But um, I first was turned on mostly to Billie Holiday, and I think kind of that's where that came from. With you know, because Amy, I think, is reminded a lot of Billie Holiday. But those were definitely. Um, who I get compared to the most is that kind of style. And have they been influences on you as well? Yeah, for sure. Um, I first started with Billie Holiday um, and then led up to Amy Winehouse, of course. But yeah, I mean, I I both really enjoy their music, especially Billie Holiday. I love that old, you know, sound. She had a a certain twain and her uh, way she sang was very, you know, long, the way she held out her words. But, um, But yeah, both of them definitely had an influence. And what about reggae? When did you become interested in reggae? How did that, how did that, you're, you're a reggae singer now, right? Well, yeah. Reggae, reggae dance is, hall. Yeah, well, uh, Coco is definitely more of the reggae dance hall. That's where he comes in to play with the reggae sound. Um, his productions and the music that he makes is, that, is, is where the reggae comes in. But um, I first got re- into reggae when my mother remarried to a guy named Joe who's from Puerto Rico. And he had a huge collection of, of roots reggae, actually. Um, a lot of it was like, Oh, God, Peter Tosh, Gregory Isaacs. Of course, Bob Marley was a big influence. Um, but that's where I first came into listening to that kind of music. And did you think? Did you always think you were going to end up playing? Because what was your first, what were you playing when you were with Granddaddy? I don't let me Granddaddy's say skank. Granddaddy's skank. Slank, well, right? a lot of people want to say skank. A lot of people do, including me. How, how, what does that mean? What's a slank? <laughs> well, slank was a style of playing that uh, Nate, the guitar player, had used um, that was his definition of his style, which was, um, you know, across a combination, I guess, of like funk and slow music, oh, something like cool. that. Slank, slank, slow yeah. funk, slank, yeah. slank. Where's the A from? Sounds okay. like it should be slunk. <laughs> Maybe, right? yeah. It was his own little idea, but uh, the name seemed to, you know, somewhat be fun. But um, so, yeah, that's where that came from, was from him. And then reggae just sort of evolved. Well, was it something you always knew you would play, or did always it just was, kind of happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I've always loved to listen to reggae. It's been a huge part of my, um, you know, collecting um, music and listening to those artists. But, you know, I've always, too, once I came to New Orleans, I wanted to get more immersed into that scene. So I started going to the Shiloh over on Chapatulas. And that's where I started to get interested into, like, yeah, I would love to have that sound mixed into you know, my vocals and bring that subtropical feel of, you know, I feel like New Orleans has a connection to that a little bit. Right. What a great place to play that. So how about if we hear something? What are we going to hear? What's your first, what's um, your first number here? Our first number will be Ain't No Use. And this is, of course, like a, that's more like a love song. All right. We're ready. Let's hear it. All right. No 
Oh I didn't gosh, hear Amy Winehouse at all. Thank I heard, you. I heard all Billie Holiday. Thank you, you so much. Yeah, I've, been I a, that too. I've been a music critic for 10 years, and I hear a lot of bad music, and that was really good. It was awesome. Like, Thank I get so all much. kinds of bad music, and that was really good. I bet you get, yeah, you do. So so what's the worst you've heard lately? Oh, my God. They just, <laughs> Can you mention, get, mention names? We won't tell. No, <laughs> it's just I get music all the time, because I get, I get, when I was at Offbeat, I would get a lot of stuff. Do people send then, you stuff? Like, yeah. I don't get as much anymore. I run a site right now. It's called Moonrunners. It's me and, uh, like, have you ever heard of, I hate name dropping. Sorry. Like, my, uh, I run it with Shooter Jennings. He's Waylon Jennings' son. Yes. Oh, yeah, like, watch out. Don't let yeah, that. He's, don't. We run it together. He's, like, there's four of us, and. He's my dude, and so he's we get awesome. stuff constantly sent to us. Wow, cool! Between like me, Josh, and Adam, like we get music sent to us, and a lot of it's really bad. Yeah. And so I, I quit doing music reviews for a long because time it was because so bad. I just wasn't getting anything. Like for a long time, I was getting like, what was the last really great record I got? I got there's a dude called J.D. McPherson. He wrote a record called Signs and Signifiers that was brilliant. It was like. Talking Heads meets Elvis meets, like, mm. it was Talking Heads, Elvis, and Little Richard in one. I mean, it's the most honest, cool, old-school rock and roll that you can get. It sounds like it was recorded in 1957, and it's brand new. And uh, I was the first critic to review that record. Now that dude is blowing up. Like, we saw him at, I recovered South by Southwest last year, and his show was jam-packed, and now he's doing all these crazy tours. He was on Letterman last week, and he was on Conan O'Brien, and it's like... We get good stuff like that, but I get so much bad music. I get so much bad music. So you wouldn't... This this is not... If you got Miss Mech's CD, how would you review it? Oh, I'd give it... If, uh, based on that, I would definitely... Because a lot of times, I'll get stuff... Because, I mean, I'm a DJ, too. So I'll get something and go, nope. And I'll, just, I'll, give, I'll make it a minute and a half. But I would absolutely, absolutely review that. And I told her, I was like, well, just get me some of your stuff. And now I actually want some stuff. Yes, they, I will be sitting it your way for sure. So, Jeff, what do you think? Do you listen to music? All the time, yeah. What do you like? Uh, it's an eclectic mix. I, I, oh, let's hear it. Let's hear some. I range from the Doors to Sinatra and you know, oh, two nice. greats. The old standards in between, and yeah, you know, no, I'm, I'm just your song. Your sound really resonates with me. I, I, you know, I don't think I'm too old to say that, but uh, you know, it's, it's it's nicer when it's a little bit more natural and elemental like that to me. You know, as it's, opposed to what. Uh, symphonic is yeah, hyper electrical and just you know voiced over crap that, that <laughs> highly produced yeah. sound doesn't yeah. appeal to you that much yeah, yeah. i mean the yeah. pop fluff which i you know i i'm hoping is giving way to more and more of your sound out there commercially i just went i came back from bonnaroo and i was pleasantly surprised by the quality of the music there you uh, went to bonnaroo cool. i did yeah was I that did. your first time it was yeah. yeah yeah it was a good experience uh 
I went with some childhood friends. Uh, maybe it's my early onset of my midlife crisis, but it was uh, it was it was really fun. We Where'd you time. stay? We stayed in a tent in a, in a oh, big field. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so you wow. did the camping. Yeah, no, yeah. I couldn't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. I like air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> I like air conditioning. I mean, I got. I've been invited. I'm like, you can go to Bonnaroo, full ride. I could go for free. I won't go. Oh, right. you know, who you sound like you sound like Arthur Riley. I was. Well, I won't go. I'm <laughs> not his, sleeping. That's his. That's his. Uh, his serial killer. Main it helps. It helps staying up till three, four in the morning to you know make that uh, sleep in the tent go a little easier. Yeah, we're we're going. The uh, bathroom. So what about the bathroom? Yeah, no, that's no, my no. No. That's a that's an exercise encouragement. Right. Yeah, no. like I'm I'm covering uh, in November for an Australian magazine. I'm doing fun, fun, fun fest in Austin. That's indoors. I can go back to the hotel. My girlfriend's from Austin, so we oh, can perfect. like do all that. But man, there's no way <laughs> sleeping in a tent. No. I gotta ask you something. What does your girlfriend think about Arthur Riley? <laughs> My girlfriend just loves me because she wants me to succeed. But like, I mean, we don't. For a long time, we were. Her parents were. Her parents are pretty conservative people out in Texas, and we'd be like, "Well, the you Bible know, Bell, yeah. you know, they're, they're, if I told you where they were from, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I get it.' <laughs> how long really, was it? How long was it before you wore short sleeves? Huh? Oh, it was a while. It was <laughs> a minute. Oh, yeah, there, it was a minute. The right? You know, they love me right. now. They yeah. love me now. But when we right. first got together, I wore long sleeves for a while. No doubt, man. Yeah. We'll have pictures of. Uh, we'll have pictures of Robert's and tattoos like, on the website. And some of them aren't like. I mean, I have a knife going across my arm. Oh, you and, do. Yeah, you do. And now is that in honor of Arthur? Ryan? No, this no. is from a, this entire Gosh. sleeve is all based on books. Like, I have a portraits of Hank Williams and Edgar Allan Poe on my wrists. I like the Edgar. You nice. know, That's and a there's one. a bunch of different ones that I have. No, I, can, and I can see your literary inspirations all over your, your text, yeah, man. That's it's why yeah. I wanted to do that because I, I really like it, it. When we first got together, it was it was interesting. And then now everybody loves me and it's cool. But at first it was a thing. Yeah. And so I hid my tattoos for a long time. And then her dad was like, we know you have sleeves. You can just take <laughs> you can just take your off because it was really hot. And I'm like. I'm sweating. They're like, why don't you just, you know, take those off? I was like, no, it's okay. Oh, man. It's fine. It's, they're it's cool. fine. They're cool, though? They're yeah, right. they're awesome. They're totally awesome. I'm going to see them actually next week. We're going out there. We're going to go to Schlitterbahn. I've never been there, but what I hear that? it's amazing. It's like the Disney World of water parks. No, it's like three that. of them all in one. Schlitterbahn. It's a German. You've never been? You're from Texas. Never. I know. I, well, I love Texas when I was a very young child, oh. so it might not have been. It's, of course, I remember it's Six Flags. It's supposed to be like everyone, like my girlfriend, everybody tells me it's gigantic. It's like three water parks in one. Like you have to take buses to get to the other water parks. Oh, like, like, like when you're at a big like airport. Like, like it's at Disney World. Right. Yeah. What's the, what's the name behind that? Schlitterbahn? There, it's like a New Braunfels, so I guess it's yeah. really German out there. Very, yeah. I don't know. Oh, so it's some guy, some dude, I, I, who's like made it, made the park. I guess, some yeah. German guy? It's, yeah. it's, it's some gigantic water park. Mm. Well, I was going to ask her, when you record your record, are you going to, is it just going to be the two of you, or is it going to be like a bunch of stuff? Well, that's kind of where we're at right now. We oh. have a... <laughs> just the two of you. Just the just two of us. Just coming from a critic, just the two yeah, of you. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, we have a lot of stuff, of course, that's been produced, um, but that's the thing. Like, my whole idea is like, so is it okay to have some songs fully produced with more than just guitar and vocals? If you guys To ever... have a mixture of it? Or, you know, if you do a fully produced album like that, do you have to do every song like have that? Have you ever heard Brown Bird? No. The two of you need to go listen to Brown Bird. It's a guy and a girl. It's <laughs> she, it's a guy and a girl. He plays guitar and sings. She can play stand up bass. Uh, she can play the violin, and they'll have just a little kick drum. He'll keep his he'll keep his timber with that. That's all you guys need. Don't muddle it up. Do not 
crap up your sound with all this overproduction, <laughs> bells and whistles? Because what I, is bells and whistles? No, yeah, we I, might. As the lay guy listening next to you, I mean, you, you played two chords on that guitar and you sang beautifully. I mean, that was a good quality style. Yeah. I agree with you. I yeah. don't, don't don't overplay it. Well, thank man. you yeah, both. Right. You got sure. that in consideration. For sure. yeah, Check out. Telling you. And listen to the guy that's going to be buying the music, yeah. not just <laughs> right, the guy that's going to be reviewing it. He's got a bracelet on too, so he's somewhat cool. That. Wait, what is this? What do you got on? I. Caught it at Bonnaroo? No, I got this. Uh, I got this in Mexico. Oh, is that what is it? Is that hemp? It's just a, a hemp, oh, hemp. You, you bracelet. Yeah. Coco picked that out immediately. I that is hemp. Can we get I mean, he plays reggae. Cool Come on, man. Sure, cool right. Uh, can, we, can we get a picture? He probably of this smells person? like a Bob Marley concert if you sit next to him. <laughs> Let's get a picture of the hemp bracelet. I, I got We're going to put that on the website. I got this too. from an old Mayan woman. Is that illegal? In Mexico. No. Oh. Okay. It is in Mexico, I guess. Yeah. Right. So. But uh, no, it was a, it was a very destitute, poor woman, and I wear it all the time. It, it reminds me to stay humble. Mm-hmm. Why? Why yeah. did she tell you something that made no, you? No, she just it was just her way or her, her you know presence. She How was, did you meet her? She had her young. I I met her because she was just on a corner. I was walking, and she had her young child, and she was just selling these bracelets that she had hand strung, and uh, you know it was a very sad and humbling moment. To, you know, and just, that was her only source of income. You think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. As far as you know, yeah. Yeah. Right. No, you're doing that. There can't be much else, right. you know, if there wow. is. But uh, Where in Mexico was this? This was uh, in the Yucatan. It was about two hours south of uh, Cancun. You know, it was just all just a huge stark contrast from that glitzy, wealth, over-the-top beach community. And then you just, frankly, you just drive a half hour away from it. And it's very often the case, even in the States. And, you know, you see locals and they're just, you know, that, that wealth has just not trickled down to them. These communities are just, you know, you can see that in this city. Yeah, no, indeed. Yeah, indeed. For no, sure. it's, it's everywhere. But, you know, it, you know, this, this was stark poverty even by, you know, American standards. So, you know, just seeing a woman like that, you know, it, you know, these, yeah, they're cool. They look good. I, I like it. But, you know, it's also the, the, the visceral reaction I had to that moment is, is something I didn't want to let go of. So, I, so when you, uh, when you, uh, feel yourself getting a little out of hand, you take a look at that hemp bracelet and it makes you more yeah. thankful, more no, humble. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. You, can, you, mm-hmm. know, you, you got to rein yourself in from time to time. Yeah. At least I do. You know, so. What's that? Oh, Robert's got a tattoo. What is that? Just says stay loyal. Yeah. Stay loyal. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. You keep that's it good. as a constant reminder. Yeah. That's good. Little signposts for your soul, you know, along the way. Sometimes you need to see them. They need to be outside of you. Sounds like a lawyer for the people. It's like the one that somebody has uh, put up a sign around uh, New Orleans that says, think that you might be wrong. I don't know if y'all seen that, that one. Was, yeah. that, I that, love that one. Yeah, I'm like, those yeah, things, yeah. That's exactly those things right. started sprouting up years ago. Are they still around? They are still around. Um, my mom was in the Bywater, so I'm always, you know, there's one over there, and I just think it's a really good one. It's, that makes you stop and think. Really, I mean. Yes, it's not me. Yeah. I sure. love that. That's really cool. <laughs> So you guys, you you, Katrina is not over. Are you still doing some of the recovery stuff, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're. I think we all relate to this. We're you know, we're living in a frontier town, right? So I mean, it's not called recovery anymore, but whatever it is, it's just this unique thing called New Orleans. And so whether it's in the arts or community revitalization, you know, you're on the cutting edge of it. And I. I, I but to me, functional societies are boring by comparison to a place like New Orleans. So for me, professionally, yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing a lot of the same thing I was doing in those heady days right after Katrina. But, you know, I don't call it Katrina anymore. It's, to me, it's community revitalization, you know. But it's it, what I know for sure is something that can go on for a long, long time in this town, and, and it's needed. So 
Yeah, I, I, I have found my niche. Uh, you do. You yeah. feel that way. Do you think you're ever going to? You sound a little political. We've got the Democratic Party thing going on. Do you see yourself running I, for office? You know, I have that political itch problem. Yeah, I don't mm. know what to quite deal with it. You know, I, uh, and it's one of those things, you know, you, you, that's why I like the signpost for the soul, frankly, because, you know, you, get, you, get, you can get immersed in politics and quickly lose all that humility and sense of reality. But, well, you know, at the end of the day, it's an agent for change. And, sure. You know, so if I think I have a mind for that kind of stuff... I, I want to I want to be involved in it, but you know it's definitely something where you have to take it uh, take it take care when you do it. Will you give us the scoop? It's New Orleans. Can we get the scoop? It's New Orleans. What's happy the hour? scoop? <laughs> if you decide to run for office, <laughs> oh, you come oh, to my happy hour oh, first. Yeah, okay. I, I will announce here. All right, that's Dear good Lord, I, I don't I won't hold your breath, but uh, yeah. Well, if you are headed to New Orleans and need to book a hotel or a tour or need tips on what to do while you're here, check in with our friends at NewOrleans.com, the official New Orleans travel site. All right. So uh, I think maybe time for a little bit more music. What do you think? One more. You have, you have another oh, something queued up yes, for us? Yeah. Have, yes, of course. Always. This is, um, this is a tune that's actually on our Reverb Nation page for anybody who wants to check it out later. Mm-hmm. This is called uh, Part of You. A part of you is a part of me. Together in this life, we are gonna be. Open up your heart, and you will see. A part of you is a part of me. We are. Carrying on throughout our lives Hoping that we don't divide Together we can get this right Just you and I part of me together in this life we are gonna be open up your heart and you will see a part of you is a part of me Love 
sweetly And I give it all away Till she screams my name Vibration run inside of me And who are we? We are meant to be Creating our destiny A part of you Is a part of me Together in this life We are gonna be Open up your heart And you are gonna see A part of you Is a part of me Do you like Lily Allen? <laughs> Lily Allen? Yeah. Yes, is she um, British uh, yeah, singer? Yeah, she does. Yeah. Why did you Lily mention Allen. Lily Allen? That's I. I think I like her too. How did you? What? Because what, Lily Allen's first record has a whole lot of like ska reggae to it. Because I saw her in Chicago, like when her first record came out, and she had a full blown. She was covering the special. She was covering Madness. Nice. Oh, she was, a, she yes. was real in she's re, her first record. I don't know what she's doing now, mm-hmm. but all right, still had a lot of like moments of exactly like some of the same rhythmic style that you're going for. Nice. Yeah, I don't it's know what she's doing either. I haven't heard from she's her in a like, while, huh? She's pregnant again. She's like married. <laughs> Adele's pregnant. Now. I just wrote. I just wrote a piece. <laughs> Adele, come on, you just. I, I just wrote pregnant. a piece yesterday. I came. It went live about how I think Adele's career is ruined. I, I mean, why, why, come on, because she just that? won why? a Grammy, and this right. is not the time for her to have a baby. Right, it's not about it's not about that. Is if no? you got, I assume everyone in the room all likes Adele, right? <laughs> of course, we love Adele. Adele. Everybody likes Adele. Okay, nineteen was a good record. Nineteen was a good record. It was very dark because she was on the outside. Twenty-one, she was miserable because some guy killed her <laughs> psychologically and emotionally, ripped her heart apart, and that created something beautiful and something sonic that none of us could ever understand. She's married with a kid now and a multi-millionaire. You're never going to recapture that darkness. She'll just get another audience that's now married couples with babies. That, like, I, just, I don't you see know it happening. I mean? The whole just kind of shit. I, so, I think she's just like... Remember when Alanis Morissette came out with Jagged Little Pill and that album was phenomenal <laughs> and gigantic? What happened to Alanis Morissette after Jagged Little Pill? She got happy. That's exactly what's going to happen to Adele. Adele is a beautiful, phenomenal artist. Don't get happy. I was just saying, maybe we should Why skip happy years. Music not sell? Advice to artists. Come back, come back at maybe 25 or 27 when the angst has returned. Yeah, yeah. It's, Alanis Morissette oh, just dropped back. something yeah. now, right? Oh, she's still quality. I'm not saying she's not quality. She's just not going to have that. Someone like you is a moment in time. Set fire to the rain is a moment in time. It's true. You're never going to recreate that moment. Well, but what you're saying i think though is she could she have recreated if she had stayed miserable yeah you can Uh be miserable because there's bands that like if you look at like there's a band (laughs) called portishead portishead has remained brilliant through it because they've kept that darkness there's a Mm. group of people that's insular that they can find that like radiohead has always remained very interesting because it's an insular thing they're their own little crew Adele's by herself. She's just one person. Now that's rich and happy and gonna have a baby. What about the Smiths? <laughs> yeah, yeah, her hormones are really bad. 
<laughs> Don't you think the Smiths kind of got insufferable? Yeah, well, I mean, Morrissey's been miserable for 30 years. My and, point. But people still love him. But he's re- when you go to see Morrissey, you're only going to hear Smith tunes in his first three records. I think Adele's going to make a musical. I think she's going to be awesome. Oh, I, I hope she's yeah. going to be phenomenal. But Hey, refills, anybody? Yeah? Yes, please. Yes, of course. Thank you. Thank you. There's like, it's, it's just me being, you know, a writer for and thinking about things all the time and all the different uh, avenues I have to constantly think about. Because, like, a lot of things I write about is totally sociopolitical, well, too. Right, so let me ask you this. I mean, is there a way to convey joy in a meaningful way in music? Cause you I, got the joy down I, in your heart. I hear the current, music, you know, the angst and the, the you know, any kind of trauma, drama. It's, it's conveyed wonderfully by artists that can tap into that. And that seems to be the common refrain, right? But in your opinion... Give me an example of where someone went the opposite direction and conveyed just life's joy, but did it in a way that was real and with depth there, and it had soul. Ray Charles. Ray Charles, sure. But Ray Charles was yeah, from a Ray time Charles and a place did. that doesn't exist anymore. No, I so, so, like yeah, now, so now. happy yeah. music to most people is the black eyed peas. Oh, That's happy music. God. But there are quality <laughs> but there are quality artists that can do that too. There's that conveyance of happiness is alive with a lot of artists. Like if you listen to Ben Harper, Ben Harper is always up on top and right. he's phenomenal. You listen to him, or you listen to like that J.D. McPherson record. That's a happy, upbeat record. There's no bummers on it, but you listen to like different artists are very keen on finding their happiness. But certain people are better at being miserable because I guess it's more of a relatable topic. Because sometimes fun songs are good, but you have to find a way to take a fun song and make a career out of one fun song. Where versus. The the really good bands can take fifty different kinds of emotions and make records out of them. Well, that's right. No, I think I think that's an honest way to look at it. I mean, it's probably hard because it's true artistry, right? You're just capturing the full spectrum of life and doing it, you know, you know, with integrity and you know, artist uh, artistic quality. And you know, like, you probably can count on two hands how many people come to mind that can do that. But I could think of a lot of really good bands that are like available to doing that. It's just there's a certain thing that people just lose, like yeah. It's it's one of the things I, I worried about it because I was like, man, I'm like happy now. I got like a dog and a girlfriend, and we have like Just a nice a house. I wrote a book, <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, man, I still hope I can be weird. <laughs> and I think about that, and I'm like, honey, we have to go out drinking all night tonight. She's like, why? I was like, I need to keep my weird. <laughs> so how long you your book was published in? Was it March? March. Okay. So how long a process was it writing? I wrote that book right after Katrina. And it took all till March to for finally see the light of day. Well, so the writing process itself, how long did that take? About two and a half, three years. So it was finished 2009? 2009 it was finished, and then from 2009 until, in your, until about a year ago, it was trying to sell it. Somebody pay attention to me. Somebody pay attention to me. Somebody please look at my book. And then it was like, please, hey, hey, please look at me. I don't like... I was like, I interviewed the president, and they're like, I don't care. It's totally when did different. you interview what president? I interviewed Obama a long time ago. How, when, in, in what in what context? When I when I got out of school, I went to journalism school, and so I was working in Chicago, and I was working in Rockford, Illinois, for like an NBC affiliate, and I was doing pickup work for like the Tribune and stuff. I was just doing little anything I could, and so I met Obama. We were um, he was running for Illinois Senate. And he was just blowing up, and it was just him and a driver smoking cigarettes, and it was cool as hell. He was smoking. Oh, yeah, Whoa, he was smoking. Right. I met him outside well, of a yeah, church. No, I think he's still smoking, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Oh. And he's got to have some release, right? Yeah. No yeah. Doubt, right? And so, like, I met him, and then I ended up... The only reason I got that job at the Board of Trade is because I was supposed to come into it is they were going to be like, all right, we're going to hire you to do writing work for us. 
learn the business, once you learn how the Board of Trade operates, we're going to bring you on to become like in the PR wing. That job, after five years, never materialized. And nothing I could do was happening in Chicago because we were going in the tubes. So what were you doing for the Board of Trade? I was balancing accounts for millionaires. Oh, God, yikes. You're taking Fine. a guy with an English degree. <laughs> that, richer than me. In that yeah, oh, then these guys are filthy rich. And you're taking this guy with a journalism degree that all I care about is books and music. And I'm balancing accounts for millionaires. It was... A very well-paying job, but I was so miserable. Oh, that sounds no fun. I was so miserable. Jeff, when did you know that you wanted to be a lawyer? Uh, I, I think it was in college, actually. I was a biology degree major, and I was uh, on track to be a teacher. And, I, and I, I eventually went into teaching for a little bit. I taught high school biology. Um, but I, I really got into environmental advocacy during college as well. And I, I just started you know, looking into that and studying you know, who the true warriors were and, and you know, a lot of them were lawyers. You know, the, the, the first uh, frontiersmen, of, frankly, of environmental advocacy were a bunch of lawyers who used you know, nuisance laws to do amazing things to try to just, in, until there were environmental laws on the books, that's what you could do. And it was just, that, those became kind of my heroes. So these were people who just took obscure laws that were uh, uh, bendable, if you will, to different facts and used them. Uh, and to me, I thought, well, that's, that's the right thing to do. And sure enough, you know, when I started doing more advocacy work and then I went to D.C., I realized I was surrounded by lawyers. Uh, and so to me, I came down here actually to do a lot of community uh, at, uh, activism, um, more around the, what they call community right to know. So this, you know, this, my job was to train community groups how to access government-held information about polluting companies in their neighborhoods so they can understand what was coming out of those smokestacks and, and be a better watchdog of these, of these factories. And uh, being down here and just seeing kind of this stark contrast between the haves and have-nots and, you know, this, this disproportionate amount of the you know, chemical industry relative to some of the poorest communities in the city, in, the, in this country, uh, to me, I just, this was a no-brainer to be here on the front lines. And so I decided I went to go to law school here at Tulane and they had a great environmental law program. So. Yeah, they still do. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So, uh, you know, I, what I didn't bank on was being here still. I mean, it was going to be a three-year exercise in, in environmental law and, and just have a rich opportunity to you know, do some stuff as a student attorney. I was in the law clinic. Um, but I never drove home. You know, I just I, every time I thought to get out of here and go back to D.C. or somewhere else, just some issue grabbed me. And I just found that, you know, this is such fertile ground for, for act, activism, uh, so why, why bother going somewhere else? Well, that's what happened to Oliver Houck. He was going to just do a year at yeah. Tulane. And Oliver was a mentor of mine. You know, oh, he was my, amazing, my guru. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He's, an, he's a crazy guy. Yeah. I like him a lot. In fact, I, he, he might have cemented it for me. When I came down here and I wasn't necessarily committed yet to law school, I, you know, I remember having this. I think it was actually here. We, I, I came down and did a training at uh, Tulane's Environmental Law Conference, and we had drinks afterwards here at the Columns. And... You know, I'm going off about the power of the people and how, you know, grassroots activism and you can just turn the tide. And he was just this, like, you know, <laughs> old prosecutor who just believed, like, you know, that's all fine and good. But all that leads to a lawyer just getting in there and just changing the you know, law by the you know, force of the, you know, the force of law. And, you know, I kind of begrudgingly came around to that. And it's true. You know, you need it's a balance. I mean, you certainly need you need good activism that's out there with the with the megaphone and with the creative grassroots organizing. 
but ultimately you have to change policy to make to make that stuff stick to make the change you want happen permanently you have to get in under the hood then and you, frankly you need good lawyers who can and do you that. need to be a lawyer to do that yeah. so it sounds like you were a community organizer isn't that what the president did first <laughs> wasn't that his first gig yeah, i guess i guess you know uh, I was a community organizer. I'm right? still waiting still for that am, scoop. Still am. You make sure you. I think I, you know the truth. You know, it's it's become a bit of a curse word in some quarters, but I think all of us should be you know striving to be community organizers in our own way. Yeah. Speaking of the community, have you guys been to uh, the new movement over at 1919 Burgundy Street? It's uh, after two years of shows in bars and museums and parks, the new movement. Uh, they now have a full-time comedy theater in the Marigny. It's at 1919 Burgundy. They do shows Thursday through Saturday, and everything is free or cheap, and they do improv and sketch comedy, and they do classes, and uh, it's, uh, if you want to check it out, it's tnmcomedy.com. I guess that stands for The New Movement. Uh, and you can also listen to uh, Chris True and Tammy Nelson on True to the Game. That's one of our shows on itsneworleans.com. It's New Orleans' first badass sports radio show. So, oh. just for your information. And uh, some of our guests, actually, uh, we... Somebody, uh, people have actually been to that place and, and heard of it. Uh, I haven't been yet, but I'm really excited to go because Treat of the Game is awesome. So, uh, all right, it's, uh, we, we have time for one more. If you guys have one that you want to, you, you guys want to do one more for us? Yeah, we would love to do one more. All right, let's hear it. This is a, that's kind of a lullaby. Great. Not that the other two weren't lullabies. <laughs> La 
louder than your words And I can tell by the way you are holding me And you ain't gotta buy me No diamond ring Because there won't mean nothing to me yeah. All you gotta do My darling, don't you say a word Cause your mama is here now I'm gonna give you that lullaby So hush, my darling Don't you ever say goodbye Don't you ever say goodbye So that could Thank be you. the ending for your guys' show now. Oh, yeah, so exactly. There's your end credits. <laughs> that's so beautiful. Miss Mech, I just have to say, the look on your face when you sing is beautiful. It's you so... Right, Jeff? I mean, you so clearly love what you're doing. I do. It's just oh, absolute joy. It totally comes through, but it comes through in the ears, but also... When you just when I see you, it's you just it's a beautiful, Thank beautiful you. thing. Were you the lyricist on this song? Yes, this, and the others yeah, as well. Yes, yeah, um, this song particularly came from the. I don't know if y'all are familiar with "Mama's Gonna Buy You oh, a Mockingbird," and that's kind of where that uh, inspiration came for that song. My mom used to always uh, sing that, so that definitely came through. No, your music takes you to a great place. It's really nice. Yeah, great to listen beautiful. To. I'm glad I can take you there. Yeah, no. <laughs> All right, so from the beautiful Mockingbird place, I gotta go back to the book, Robert, because I'm obsessed <laughs> with it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm, you guys, when you read this book, you will know what I mean. I, I, it's, it's haunting. I texted Robert last night while I was reading. I was like, I, this book is I, it's haunting me. All right, so let's ask. I just have to ask. How do you know about dismemberment? Is that also research? I, I have a, I, we have a bookcase in our house that's eight by eight, and it's all full of books. Like I drive my girlfriend crazy because I'm always, like I shop at McCowan's Books up on uh, Chapatulas all the time, and like anytime Maggie gets something, in, I'm like, oh, is that a book on serial killers? Who is that a book on knives? I just I buy it because it's like you come back to it. Yeah, because I mean this this on page eight, the average person doesn't have the knowledge or know-how to skin and cut up a body. It takes years of training and a meticulous precision. And I'm just wondering where your training came from. It's all from reading? It's all from reading and all from my head. I mean, oh, thank God. Although I worry about that head. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm not sure how reassuring that is. <laughs> exactly. well, I mean, it's all from my head. This table's I, getting a lot smaller. I, I, see, I see something in my head when I'm writing fiction. When I'm writing... Because I have journalism. The journalism thing goes in, like, two ways. It goes either music journalism or I talk about, like, socio-political, economic things. Because Hunter Thompson was a huge influence of mine. So it, when I see something that makes me mad in terms of, like, social change stuff, I have to, like, write, like, 2,000 words on why something sucks. And with music, I write something and I see something. It's, all right, this is good and it's bad. I talk about it and I move on. But with fiction, I have to take one thing. Like, I wrote a book called The Dear John Letter. It was a, I wrote it e-reader only. I wanted to test the waters to see about my own thing. And I, it was about a uh, woman and a man who in a really terrible relationship 
So I had to think about all the different kinds of terrible fights I've gotten in over the years or all the different people of stories that I've heard, and I take that and I remember it. And with that, I try to put myself in the mind frame of absolute darkness. So when you think of something that is really grim, you have to be able to imagine yourself in that moment and see what the world would look like from the cobwebs on the ceiling to a knife in your hand. What do you do with that? How does it feel? Where are you going to go? To any kind of fiction that I write, I see a world and I have to make it as viable and as vivid as possible so that way when you go, oh my God, this guy is not skinny. From not skinning a human to cutting open a watermelon, you're like, that's the kind of passion that you need to do that to be a writer and to take that and make somebody feel like this is something that is so visceral and so real. It, it, you're going the extra mile to give somebody that kind of experience. And um, the line about the liver being the only organ, <laughs> the only <laughs> organ worth bothering with because everything else gets too messy. Also from research. It's just research. I'm t- I have a lot. Of, I read a lot of like when I'm at home, if I'm not reading, writing or like watching some kind of documentary on something really grim or something interesting, I feel like I'm wasting time. Like I, dry, I have an office with a whole bunch of notes on the boards and everything. And if I'm not reading, if I'm not like I'll buy a book on uh, what did I get last week? I stumbled on a book for a 12 step program, like what alcoholics actually go through. And it's got notes in there. It's just called Daddy. And, like, phone numbers and stuff. And I was like, this is perfect. And I've, I'm reading it right now to, like, understand, like, what these people go through. Because it's depth that makes good writing. Yeah. That's, so that's great. That's great inspiration for writing. So right. you see that. and how, you do know. You, how do you pull yourself out then? I mean, you, you need to get in that zone to really write with that level of detail. And I agree with you. I think it, you know, that's the true, you know, di- difference between just fluff and real craft. But you, you, you then have to leave that moment, right? So I hate, how, do you, how do you do that? You hate I, leaving it? I hate leaving that because my girlfriend tells me there's two different kinds of people. Everyone does this. They say that there's Bobby, there's, that's her boyfriend, and then there's Robert Dean that has to constantly be working and constantly doing stuff. She's like, I need my boyfriend back for an hour because you need to stop being in that room and getting weird. Because my dog will sit up on the couch right behind me in my office and just be like, what is he going to do now? And I, I don't, there is no separation in my mind. Of the two, it's just I'm always wanting to be doing something. Like, I'm working extraordinarily hard to live off that. I worked really, really, really hard for that book, and I'm still working hard now, and there is no stopping at this point. It's If I can't be as absolutely successful as I can be, I'm going insane. So, like, when I leave here today, I wrote something last night, and when I leave here, I'm going right back in my office. What kind of dog do you have? I have a little... She's a... Uh, her name's Gracie. She's uh What is she? She's half Yorkie and half... Uh, Miniature Schnauzer. Oh no way! You have a, a tiny little dog. Oh yeah, I want to see. Let's people see. make fun of me. I, we, yeah. <laughs> people have stopped and pointed and laughed because she's this little tiny black dog with a pink leash, and I'm walking her around. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you and your serial killer mindset. This is that, that's what people doggy. think is funny about it. It is funny, and it's also funny that you go by Bobby. That's not funny. Just a little anomalous, you know. So, all right, everybody. That's we've got, Gracie. This is Gracie. Gracie's a black dog. <laughs> she's got wire hair. She's got. <laughs> Big eyes, and how much does she weigh? Everybody probably see seven. No, no, probably like twelve pounds. All right, so she's a small dog. She's a small. She's a cuddler. Uh huh. She hangs out in my lap and or sits on. She just watches whatever I'm doing. And what about your new novel? You have something in the works, or how far along are you? 
I finished Coffins last night, and uh, last it's, night it's been a pro- like a work. Thank you. Yeah. I finished Coffins last night. It's been a work in progress for a while, and I st- took away some time away from it and came back. Took some time away from it, and finally I sent out all the copies to the beta readers. And so if everybody that's the beta reader likes it, and then I'm going to start the whole dance of finding publication for it again. Uh, so if you finished last night, is it fair to say that Happy Hour did, in fact, get a scoop today? Yes. All right. Yes, it did. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, Next one is yours. Good to know here. Yeah. What's, what's it about? Coffins is about, um, it's about four girls who come to a uh, vacation in New Orleans from the Midwest, and they come down and they meet a pack of dudes, because we have that weird vampire culture in the quarter. So yeah, it's, like, yeah, riding the streetcar yeah. late at night. Yeah. Lights are off and on. <laughs> like, so I have that. Uh, I, I took four Midwestern girls that come to New Orleans and visit, and they meet four vampires that are vampires, and they basically hook up with them, and just terrible things happen. Yeah, yeah. just mm-hmm. absolutely terrible things happen. Then you're gonna leave it at that. Yeah, it, this is honestly like when I wrote Nightmares, people are like, "Oh, it's a horror novel." It's not a horror novel. It's not. I agree. No, I agree. It is no. not a horror. It's a psychological delve. Yeah, it's 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 more. I wouldn't even call it a thriller. I would say it is a deep dive, a deep psychological dive. I get like compared all the time to like guys like uh, <laughs> Chuck Palahniuk and like um, like different not not writers of like a genre, but writers that you know their name versus like their style of writing. Like Palahniuk or Bukowski or different guys or Hiroki Murakami, you know them because of their style, not because of what they are necessarily putting out. And those are the dudes that, after this one and after Coffins, the next ideas I have aren't necessarily about killing. Because in that book, I feel like that's a book about a person that just happens to have a lot of killing in it. And so Coffins is more of a psychological book with killing in it. But after those two are done, I want to take a break and write something totally different. You're going to be like Adele. Can you no. get happy? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't get happy. Well, you guys, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for being our guest today on Happy Hour. It's time for me to say it's been a great hour. My guests have been Robert Dean, Jeff Thomas, and Miss Mech, and Coco Dank. Our producers are Melinda Hawes, Anoush Karun, Trish Kaufman, and Grant Morris is our executive producer. Associate producer and technical director, Chris Kehoe. Music director, Christian Unruh. Web designer and link to the real world is Cliff Brigden. And our theme was written and played by Mitch Foreman. If you'd like to be on the show, go to itsneworleans at gmail.com. Drop us a line. We were recorded live at the Columns Hotel. Check out our other happy hours and our other shows. Out to Lunch with Peter Raschuti live at Commander's Palace. Mindset with psychiatrist Dr. Nick Pajic. And True to the Game with Chris True and Tammy Nelson. Keep up with us by liking It's New Orleans on Facebook, following us on Twitter, and subscribing to our podcasts on iTunes. Happy Hour is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com. For Mitch Foreman on piano, I'm Graham DePonte. See you next time on Happy Hour.